Well, this morning we are back in the book of Philippians. And so if you have a copy of God's Word, you can turn there to Philippians chapter 1. If you don't have a copy of God's Word with you, there's one in the pew directly in front of you. And I invite you to turn there as well. It is unfortunate that in our country today that there are those who claim the name of Jesus and yet have Christ and his purposes on the fringe of their life. When it's convenient, they'll read their, their Bible. When it's convenient, they'll go to church. When they have a few bucks left over at the end of the month, they'll give them to the Lord's work. And this, my friends, is a sad portrayal of those who claim to submit to Jesus as the Lord of their entire life. But the early Christians knew no such half-hearted Christianity. In fact, listen to this quote. It says, When the early believers converted to Christ, it never occurred to them to fit him into the margins of their busy lives. They redefined themselves around a new immovable center. He was not an optional weekend activity along with the kids' soccer practices. They put him and his church and his cause first in their hearts, first in their schedules, first in their budgets, first in their reputations, first in their very lives. They devoted themselves, as Acts chapter 2, verse 42 says. Friends, we need to be reminded of what it looks like to be all in for Jesus Christ. What a Christ-centered life looks like. And we will see this this morning from the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 1, verses 18 through 26. So follow along as I read, reading from the English Standard Version, halfway through verse 18, it says, Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This morning from this passage we are going to see three facets of life, three facets of a life centered on Christ as modeled by the Apostle Paul so that we too would orient our lives around our Lord. So let's first see that a 
Christ-centered life seeks the glory of Christ. It seeks the glory of Christ. And we see this in verse 18 through 20. Now in these verses, he has just uh, finished updating the Philippians on his situation. He talked about how the gospel had advanced even though he was in chains. And he was rejoicing that even though there were those who were preaching Christ in order to bring harm to Paul, he was rejoicing that Christ at least was being proclaimed no matter what. And as we talked about last week, this shows how Paul prioritized the gospel over his own concerns. And we're going to see that that continues in the passage before us. You notice that most of our Bibles split verse 18 between two different paragraphs. Why is that? Well, for one, verse numbers were not a part of the original letters. In other words, Paul didn't write verse 1 and then he wrote his text and then when he felt like he had come to fill the verse enough, he wrote verse 2 and went along. No, verse numbers were added actually in 1555. So there was a millennia and a half that where these the scriptures did not have verse numbers in them. And as we look at the text and as uh, Bible publishers seek to understand how best to break up the text in, in thought paragraphs, sometimes that breaks up verses. But we see that here at the end of, or in the middle of verse 18, he says that he is rejoicing for the proclamation of Christ. And then he says, yes, and I will rejoice. This repetition of his joy is, yes, a repetition of his joy of the proclamation of Christ. But as we see, it's also transitioned to a new thought. He says, yes, and I will rejoice. I think in this we see a deliberation that that Paul is deliberate about his joy. He's not simply going to have his joy and his emotions swayed by his circumstances. He is deliberate in saying, I will rejoice. He's being intentional in his joy. Friends, this is a good word for us as well. That no matter where God has placed us, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, even if we are in prison, locked in chains, and having people who should be friends instead attacking us, that even there, we can rejoice if we would but choose to rejoice in Christ. But he goes on. He says, I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance. He says, this will turn out. What is the this? I believe that this is his imprisonment and the impending trial that is coming. So he says that this imprisonment and impending trial will turn out for his deliverance. Now, there is a debate here among interpreters about what exactly Paul is talking about. And as most translations indicate, many scholars believe that Paul is referencing his release from prison, hence the term deliverance. But the word that's used here that's translated deliverance is just the simple, normal word that we see often in our translation as salvation. And that is why the King James Version translates it as salvation. Now, to translate it as salvation is not to say that Paul believes that 
he is getting saved through this experience, as we can obviously see. And so hence the debate about what salvation he's talking about. I believe that Paul is more specifically speaking about his final salvation. That future time where he will be totally and completely saved, standing before the judgment seat of Christ. And there he will be vindicated. Paul is speaking about being vindicated by God in the heavenly court. It's the opinion of God that he cares about the most. And I think this fits the context here. Even though a release from prison would be an understandable request, what we see in verses 19 and 20 is that Paul's concern is more with his own faithfulness to Christ in the midst of the imprisonment. That he cares about the glory of Christ no matter what his circumstances are. Whether he's released or whether he's executed. Paul knows that he will stand before the Lord one day and he's sensing that it could be sooner rather than later. And he will need to give an account for how he conducted himself during his imprisonment and during the trial. And whether he's set free or executed, he wants to be vindicated before the Lord. And we will see in just a bit that this vindication will be determined on whether he stands and speaks boldly for Christ during this trial. But this vindication, he says, won't come simply by his own doing. He is desperate for the assistance of the Holy Spirit. And he is asking then that the Philippians would pray that the Holy Spirit would equip him and help him in these potentially final moments of his life. Notice that he says, it is through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. So Paul sits in house arrest and awaits his hearing before Caesar and he informs the Philippians that they are playing a key role in his life there at that very moment. And I'm sure the Philippians who loved him dearly felt so helpless. They had already sent Epaphroditus, their friend and beloved brother, to go minister to Paul. And then they hear that that brother is sick and almost dying and they're just going, oh, we want to help our friend Paul, as he is imprisoned. And Paul here reassures them that there is indeed something that they can do. They can get on their knees for their brother Paul. He needs them to pray. They must pray. And so Paul essentially asked the Philippians to pray that he would be faithful to the end. And as they pray, Paul says the, the Holy Spirit will help him he, he says that it's the help or provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ that will come as a response to their prayers. This word help or provision simply means support or filling in what is lacking. Paul is saying that he needs their prayers that the Spirit might strengthen him in these days. The Spirit of Jesus Christ an interesting name or title for the Holy Spirit. But what this represents is saying that the, it's the Spirit which represents Jesus, the, the one that Christ, that uh, Paul is on trial for. That one will send his Spirit personally to equip Paul to stand. And Paul is certain of this. 
He knows that this spirit is the one sent from Jesus to equip him. In his letters, Paul frequently asks for prayer. This is not the only time. And he knows that those churches that are out there are key partners in his, with him in his ministry. He knows that he is carried along and supported by their prayers. He feels very dependent upon them. And friends, this is instructive for us. We are partners with those who are representing Christ around the world, with our missionaries. We must be faithful to pray for them and support them. They need us. For if the Apostle Paul needed prayers in his missionary endeavors, then indeed our missionaries today need support in prayer as well. We must keep them in prayer. And even this morning, right, as Brother Art reminded us of the Smiths who are back in the States and of this short-term team going to support Promise and Promise in her ministry out there, there is much for us to pray for. Much for us to support them in. Let us not lose faith. And let us continue to be strong in prayer, supporting them. We have the advantage of videos and pictures and quickly sent newsletters. <laughs> they, in, this for, in the early church, had to wait for letters to be hand-delivered. And yet, Paul is asking them to pray. Even when they might not know the current up-to-date information, they are to pray. And so must we. So as Paul pray, asks for prayer and says that the Spirit will help them to turn out for his final vindication before the Lord, he says then in verse 20, look at it. He says, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. He says, it is my eager expectation and hope. These words are very closely related and communicate a similar idea. You could almost translate it as hopeful expectation. In the Bible, hope is not wishful thinking, like a child who hopes he gets something for Christmas. But hope is a confident expectation. That's why our our destiny in heaven we can hope in we don't wishfully think and hope that we get to heaven but we confidently can expect that we will get to heaven so what is paul's hopeful expectation well he expresses it in two statements one a negative side and one a positive side but they're two sides of the same coin he says first that i will not be at all ashamed in other words, he doesn't want to stand before Christ and hang his head in shame about how he acted, thinking about words he should have said or ways in which he dodged representing Christ. Shame here would come if he shrunk back from his duty to proclaim Christ as he stood before the tribunal. He would be ashamed if he avoided the issue of Christ. But not only does he not want to be ashamed, but he says that with full courage now is always that Christ would be honored in my body. This is expressing the positive side of what he's ultimately hoping for. That we're, whatever decision is made about his ultimate fate, that Christ would receive the glory. 
Paul would consider it a success for Christ if he would stand before the tribunal and he would glorify Christ. Here we see the resolve of the apostle as he faces a potential death and yet his greatest concern is that Christ would be honored. He isn't concerned about how he will be perceived. He isn't concerned about whether the authorities will like him. He isn't concerned about all the vacations he wanted to take. He is solely concerned that Christ would be glorified through him. It's important to note that this desire to glorify Christ is not something that suddenly appeared to him here in house arrest in Rome. Notice that he says, now as always. This is his, has been his consistent desire throughout his life as a believer. This has been his habit up to this point. Friends, if we want to live Christ-centered lives that, is faith, that are faithful to the end, then we must commit to glorify Christ now in our everyday, in our decisions, wherever God places us. How absurd it is to think that we would give Christ glory later. No, he deserves the glory now. He deserves the glory in our lives today. He deserved the glory in our lives yesterday as well. And obviously we're going to fail in giving him the ultimate glory, but we need to seek and strive and pray and ask that God would, would be pleased to glorify his son through us. That must be our heart's cry. That he would receive glory now and through all of eternity. Christ gave his life for us. And now through the power of his spirit, we must offer our lives to him for his glory. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, that we are not our own. We were bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. Friends, that is the calling upon us today. You are not your own. You do not decide what you are to be endeavoring in in this life. Christ decides that. And to pursue his glory is the best thing that you could ever commit your life to. This is not the second best. This is the very best. And this glory can come in all circumstances of our lives. This can come in life or in death, in our comfort or in our suffering, in our joy or in our sorrow. All aspects of our existence are opportunities for Christ to be honored. May we be so surrendered to Christ, so jealous that he receive all the glory that's due his name that we would seek to glorify Christ in all things. And this is the first facet of a Christ-centered life. It seeks the glory of Christ. The second facet of a Christ-centered life is that it longs for the presence of Christ. Verses 21 through 23. With verse 21, Paul now makes a transition. He begins a very personal confession about a very difficult situation. He's standing between life and death between execution and release. And as he contemplates his potential execution, it causes him to think about what he values most. Because as we just saw, 
Paul strives for Christ to be glorified in all things, whether in life or death, it's natural for us to read him to say here in verse 21, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ, to die is gain. This is a declaration that has stood over the centuries of the church, inspiring millions and reminding Christians of the centrality of Christ in both life and death, and it does the same today. In the first phrase, Paul says that his life belongs to Christ. It is governed by Christ. It is centered on Christ. He says, for me to live is Christ. This is similar to what he wrote in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul's life was not devoted to his own comfort. He did not direct his energies to advance his own name. He did not find value and meaning in his own accomplishments. Paul found his identity in Christ. And so he could say, he could sum up his entire life, for me to live is simply Christ. But secondly, he says, to die is gain. Now, in the view of the ancient Greeks, the, the culture that he's writing, death was gain because it was a release from toilsome labors on earth. If you had a burdensome life, they, they saw death as this great release where you could be freed from these burdens. And some have argued that this is why Paul says that death is gain. He's, he's lived a difficult life. He's been beaten. He's been tortured. There's a lot, he's been shipwrecked. I mean, He's got the long list of sufferings. And so he sees death as simply this release from the toilsome labor. But I don't think this is true. Paul's worldview is shaped by Christ, as we just said. Not by the Greek philosophy of the day. He has a completely different orientation. Life for Paul was not something to be escaped. It was something that had tremendous significance and meaning because it was in life that he was able to glorify Christ and to minister to Christ's people. As he will declare, we'll see in a few verses. He could say that death is gain because in death, he was united with Christ completely. As he will write a few verses later, death means being with Christ. He also wrote of this in 2 Corinthians 5, verses 6 through 8. He said, So we are always of good courage. For we know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. Again, Paul saying, whether in life or in death, he wants to please the Lord. And saying that when he does indeed leave his body behind, he is being united with Christ. Therefore, for the believer, whether in life or in death, Christ is the one we seek and love and glorify. 
But this leaves Paul conflicted. He's under house arrest, and if it were up to him, which would he choose? If God were to show up and say, do you want to come and be with me, or do you want to stay and minister? And Paul says he's, he's conflicted. Look at verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh, that means faithful labor for me. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He knows that remaining in this life would mean more ministry. He calls it fruitful labor. Fruit that would proceed from his efforts and from his work and from his labor. He wants to keep going for Christ. He wants to keep evangelizing the lost and ministering to the saints and shepherding the saved. But he's conflicted. He says he, can't, he cannot tell which he would choose. He cannot declare which one he would choose. He described his inner conflict as being hard-pressed. The illustration is a, is a narrow pathway between two tall walls and, it, and, and feeling like the, the walls are closing in on you as you walk down this narrow path. He felt hard-pressed. He couldn't turn one way or the other. He was pressed between these two options. They just kept closing in on him. But he's brutally honest when he says that. He says, my desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. He doesn't have a problem with stating what his desire is, that he wants to be with Christ. Now, I can imagine a few of his readers might have heard that to be a little cold and say, but Paul, you can't, like, want to leave us. You, you want to stay with us, don't you? But here Paul, again, is expressing that his ultimate concern, his greatest desire is to be with his Lord. And this is what is true for all Christians. Being with Christ in heaven is better. And for, friends, this is why Paul could say that dying is gain. This is why the death of a believer is not a tragedy. It is an entrance into the presence of God where he is perfected. And the one he has sought in faith all of his life is now able to be seen with his very eyes. And while we grieve the loss of our loved ones who know the Lord, it is not a pure and hopeless grief. We rejoice that they are seeing their Savior face to face. Our loss is their gain. Folks, I believe here there are his, Paul's perspective challenges us in a few ways. Just a, a couple for us this morning. First is our view of death. We must not adopt the prevalent view today that death is our friend and can be welcomed, especially for those with chronic pain or illness. And this is the message of those who claim to be promoting a message called death with dignity. That you're in pain, you're in suffering, and you should welcome death, in fact, try to usher death on in order to end the misery in this life. They want people to cause their own death because death is a release from the pain and the struggle of this life. A view not too dissimilar from the view of the ancient Greeks. But this has no place in a Christian worldview. Friends, death is the enemy. It came as a result of sin. It is the weapon of Satan ever since the garden. But it's the enemy that we know Christ has defeated. 
And so we do not welcome death, but we can face it with joy knowing that death for the believer is gain. The second way that it challenges us is our view of what is better. What is better? Paul says that his desire is to be with Christ because that is far, far better. He wanted to be close to his Lord. And as he'll write later in this book in Philippians, he counted all things in this life as loss for the sake of knowing Christ. Friends, many Christians, especially here in the prosperous West, I think would have a hard time confessing this truth if they were brutally honest. Our wealth and comfort increases our love for this world. And it keeps us from longing for heaven. It keeps us from loving Christ purely and simply and completely. I ask you, do you long to be with Christ? Can you truly say that is far, far better? It's okay to be conflicted. Paul was conflicted. But at the end of the day, we need to, in our innermost being, need to know and confess that it is best that we be with Christ if that be the Lord's will. Are you willing to let go of everything here? Of course, our spouses, we love our spouses and our families and those around us, but our love for Christ must rise above even these. I love how one commentator put it. He said, For the apostle, so intimate is the bond between the believer and his Lord that death cannot break it. Instead, death ushers him into an even deeper fellowship with Christ so that he can say that this union beyond death is far, far better. And it's a consummation earnestly to be desired. So we see that the second facet of a Christ-centered life is that it longs for the presence of Christ. Finally this morning, the third facet of a Christ-centered life is that it ministers to the, bo- to the body of Christ or the bride of Christ. Let's look at Paul's words in verses 24 through 26. Paul says, But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Paul turns from his desire to be with Christ to what then he judges as more necessary. He realizes that while his greatest desire would be to be with the Lord, he knows that there are people who need him. Probably gave the Philippians a little sigh of relief. But while remaining submissive to the Lord's plan for him, he believes it is more necessary for him to remain alive so that he can minister to the Philippians and I think by extension the other churches that he founded and planted. Because he believes that this is more necessary, he's convinced that he will remain alive so that he can continue to minister to them. Notice verse 25 says, convinced of this. I don't think this was given to him by divine revelation so that he knows beyond a shadow of a doubt because God told it to him. I think it's in his 
judgment there as he evaluates the options. He judges that to stay for the sake of the churches would be more necessary, as he said in verse 24. And therefore, he is personally convinced that this is more necessary. But notice that his concern is not for his own welfare. It's not for what he desires most. It's for the bride of Christ. It's for the church. He doesn't want his life to continue so that he can earn more money, take more vacations, or get that house he's always wanted. He wants to remain on this earth so that the church could be built up. Folks, this is instructive for us. If we're going to live Christ-centered lives, faithful to the end, then we must have the bride of Christ on our hearts. I'm not just saying that we need to go to church. That's certainly part of it. I'm saying we need to join in the work. We need to join in the labor. The New Testament doesn't know any believers who are sitting on the bench. The New Testament church, all believers are in the game with a uniform on receiving uh, the game plan and executing. But obviously, the parts that we all play can take a variety of forms. We all are gifted differently. We all can serve one another in the church in in a myriad of ways. And so there isn't one way that we all need to serve For if we were all an eye or if we were all a mouth, right? Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, then you have a disaster of a body. God's created us all with different giftings, different passions, but all working together to build up the church and further the Great Commission. Could be just small conversations after church. Could be that phone call in the middle of the week, the email. Could be having someone over for dinner, pursuing your small groups. We move towards one another with the intent of helping one another another live more faithfully for Christ. And this is a task we should all be involved in. But I want us to see Paul's goals in his ministry. So he says, I want to stay here on this earth because I want to minister But what was it he was striving to bring about in his ministry? We see three goals in his ministry in these verses. He says in verse 25, Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. And so the first goal that we see is for growth in the faith. The first goal he is striving for as he sits there and he wants to see brought about in the Philippians is progress. It's growth. He wants them to make progress in the faith. For growth is a sign of life, is it not? Without growth, without progress, there is reason to question whether there is actually life and growth. This is easily seen in The plant world, if a plant is not growing, then you have reason to suspect whether it's actually alive. But if it's growing, you know there's life there. And the same is true for the Christian. We are to grow and to make progress in the faith. But you might say, so what, what does progress in the faith look like? 
I'm coming to church. I'm listening to sermons. I'm reading my Bible. What does progress in the faith look like? Let me suggest four things, and this is just from the book of Philippians. We could pull from all of the scriptures and get a long, exhaustive list. But in chapter 1, verses 9 through 11, he talks about abounding in love, right? He says, it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. This is one way that Christians can progress and grow in the faith is growth in our love. There's also growth in the knowledge of Christ. Chapter 3, verses 7 through 11, he talks about uh, he's count everything as lost for the sake of knowing Christ Jesus. And this is what he presses on to do. And so we need to grow in our knowledge of Christ. Chapter 4, verses 6 through 7, we grow in trust of the Lord and in prayer. He says, do not be anxious for anything, but in everything with prayer and supplication, make your requests known to God. We're to grow in our trust of God so that we are no longer anxious. And fourthly, we can grow in our decisions and actions that accord with Scripture. That on a daily basis, in every little circumstance that we find ourselves in, that we want to be aligning ourselves with the Word of God. In chapter 4, verses 8 and 9, right, the familiar passage, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any, if there is any excellence, if there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. But don't just think about them. He says, verse 9, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. We are to think Upon what is true, which means the word of God means to soak our thoughts so that the word of God can be reflected in our actions as we practice it out. And we must want to help others to grow and progress in these things. Now, this is goals of Paul's ministry. He wants to minister to others so that others will grow. Do you have a concern that the people around you, the people in your small group, the people that you sit in the pew next to you would progress in the faith? It's part of what it means to be Christ-centered. The second goal in Paul's ministry is joy in faith. Joy. I love this. He's not just concerned about bare obedience. He doesn't just want to make sure that you can check off on the list that you're following the rules. He says he wants progress and joy in the faith. He wants to see the Philippians be believers who are rejoicing in Christ, who are overflowing with joy. Joy is clearly on Paul's mind as he writes this letter. He mentions joy or rejoicing several times. And this helps us to see that Christian discipleship involves joyful obedience. Folks, this also applies to our children. That we don't just want to see them obey and follow the rules. We want to see them enjoy the rules and delight in the rule giver. And so in our ministry to one another, let us strive to help one another rejoice in Christ. But we see then the third goal of Paul's ministry is the glory of Christ. Notice that he wants to do all this ministry, verse 26, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. 
And here we end where we began. The glory of Christ is central. What we are striving for. And so Paul wants to glorify Christ, and then he wants to minister to others so that they would glorify Christ. And in all of it, sandwiched is the, the, the big glory of Christ sandwich. He begins and ends with this. It's all about him. May this be the case in our own lives, friends. May we desire the glory of Christ in our ministries and in our own lives. May we be sold out, all in for Jesus Christ. May we be wholehearted for Christ. I'll end with this quote. This is a statement that Ray Ortland Sr. said to his son, Ray Ortland Jr. He said, listen, son, half-hearted Christians are the most miserable people of all. They know enough to feel guilty, but they haven't gone far enough with Christ to be happy. Be wholehearted for him. May that be the case for us. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Our Father, we thank you for your word this morning. Father, we want to be wholehearted for you. We want to see Christ glorified in all things. And yet, we recognize the struggle against the world and the, our flesh and the devil. Father, would you enable these words by the Apostle Paul to help refocus us this morning that we would be Christ-centered no matter where we are, no matter what circumstances we find ourselves in, And that we might be able to say with the Apostle Paul that whether in life or in death, that Christ would be honored in our bodies. It's in his name we pray. Amen.